you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you or in a pew back in front of you. Again, if you don't own a Bible, take it. This is God's Word, and we want you to hear from God's Word. And that's going to be incredibly important for us today as we're going to see the beauty of God's Word and the power of God's Word. And so we're in James, which is almost to the end of the Bible. It's about four or five books before the end. And it's after the big book of Hebrews and before 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. And we're going to be in chapter 1 of James, starting in verse 19 until verse 21. And as we get started this morning, I've got a question to kind of uh, challenge us, if you will. How do you handle situations that cause anger to arise in you? You know those situations that are just difficult? And you begin to get heated and begin to get angry and get frustrated and everything in you wants to lash out. How do you handle those kinds of of situations. If you were to do a quick Google search on dealing with anger, you would find a plethora of ways to deal with anger. Some would say count to 10. Some would say to breathe slowly. Others would say exercise or do something creative or talk to somebody or uh, let go of your thoughts. But what do you do when those things fail? What do you do when, when situations are pressing in on you and your response is towards anger and then you try to employ the world's methods and that fails? Where, where do you turn? Do you turn to medicine? Do you turn to anger management? There's a lot of tips that can help. But what happens when they don't ultimately help? Where do you turn for a lasting solution? You see, the answer to that question is going to reveal our heart. It's going to reveal what we're putting our hope and what we're putting our trust in in the midst of difficult situations. And that's going to be massive for James this morning. And so I just want to ask you again, how do you handle difficult situations that lead you to anger? So when I was in the eighth grade, every year, my school would take a, the eighth grade class and we would fly all the way across the country and we would tour Washington, D.C., we'd tour Philadelphia, we'd tour Gettysburg, and then we'd also go to Lancaster. And if you've ever been there, and you'd see that there's a bunch of Amish stores and if you walk into an Amish store, typically you see these massive quilts hanging. Anyone ever seen those hanging before, right? They're pretty beautiful. They're, it's an amazing talent. And if you ever look at them, some of them are so intricately woven that you can't even decipher the two pieces of fabric or the multi-pieces of fabric that they've put together. And it takes a lot of ingenuity, a lot of skill. And this morning, James is going to challenge us and he's going to encourage us that that's the same way the Word of God ought to be in our lives. That it ought to be so intricately woven into our lives 
that when things cause anger, instead of bursting out in anger, we're allowing the word of God to shape us to respond differently. And so this morning, what James wants us to see and what he wants us to hear is just this simple main point. That the word of God must be woven through the fabric of our lives. That if we have any fighting chance to continue to press into the Lord and not respond sinfully when life pushes on us, Our hope is ultimately to have God's word so woven into our lives that we just respond out of his word rather than our desires. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. As we do, would you stand with me as we read James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. James 1, starting in verse 19 Know this, my beloved, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So as we've been looking at really for much of the year, but even for the last couple of weeks, if you want to live for Jesus Christ and actually apply the truth of Jesus to your life, you will quickly realize that we live in a very hostile world, that the truth of Jesus and the truth of the world are in opposition, and it creates a lot of pressure, and it leads to much persecution. And I don't know about you, that's jarring to me. In fact, it feels as if the world has changed so much in the last 10 years that at times, I don't even know if I recognize the world in which we live in. Anybody else feel that? It just feels like the world has begun to squeeze on us. And as the world squeezes us, it's like a tube of toothpaste. The moment you squeeze it, you see the toothpaste come out. And the moment the world squeezes us, we see what is in us actually come out. And if we're honest, a lot of times our proclamation of Jesus does not match our application of Jesus. What we proclaim that we believe and what we actually live out in the midst of pressure and trial do not equate to one another. And James is writing to help us. He wants to remedy that issue. And so he's writing to Christians across a Roman empire in a situation in which people do not believe that Jesus is Lord. They believe Caesar is Lord. And to proclaim that Jesus is Lord would be to lead to persecution, lead to imprisonment, and possibly lead to death. And to live for Jesus means that we live a self-controlled life. To live for Jesus means that we say no to our own desires and yes to the things of Jesus. And to do that in the Roman culture 
And to do that in our 21st century Western culture is to get canceled, isn't it? To be seen as some sort of prude in life. And James wants to write to us and to encourage us how we ought to respond. And so uh, beginning in the first verse, James really walks us through a series of responses by grounding us that, that in the midst of difficulty, we should see joy in Jesus. We should count our struggles as joy for Jesus Christ. And that should deepen our dependence upon God, and it should lead us to trust in the promises of God. Not trust in what we experience here, but trust in what God is promising us for all of eternity. And the way that James is going to encourage us this morning to take all of that to apply to our lives is by encouraging us to weave the word of God in every aspect of our life. And he's going to show us that through three realities. Okay, so let's look at these three realities of how we take the Word of God and how it gets woven into our lives. And the first reality is the place of weaving. The very place that we need the Word of God woven into our lives. But to do that, we actually have to understand what the Word of God is. The Word of God is kind of like one of those telescope things that that you can pull out and and push in depending on how you're defining it. If you want to define it in the most narrow sense, the Word of God, according to Scripture, is Jesus Christ. That He is the very embodiment of God's Word. And then a little bit broader than that, it's the Gospel, the Good News That Jesus Christ has come, that he's died for our sin, that he's risen from the dead, and that he now gives eternal life to all who trust in Jesus Christ. And then in the broadest sense, it's the very words of God that we have in our Bibles. And what we believe about this book is not that it's an ancient book that has some good teaching for today, but rather that it is God's very inspired word. That every page on the Bible, not your study notes, you realize if you have a study Bible at the bottom, there's some notes, not those, but the actual words of the Bible were inspired by God to human authors to write every single word down. That it is without error in the original manuscripts. And it is sufficient for us for life and for godliness. This is why each week we come in and we hear a long teaching on God's Word because it's only when we hear God's Word that our lives can be transformed. And James wants us to understand this because notice what he says in verse 19. In verse 19, he begins by simply saying, know this. He's going to get into what the this is, but he simply begins with a command that we must know something. And this isn't just a mental knowledge. He wants this to be a heart-level knowledge. Not something that we can just get test questions right, but rather something that we actually believe is true. 
This is James' whole point throughout his book, to take the truths of Jesus and to actually apply it to our daily life. Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2 that the grace of God has appeared, and when it appeared, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live righteous lives. Do you see the connection there? That it's not just a faith in my head about Jesus, but it's actually a transformation in my heart that produces something. Tim Keller, a a former pastor uh, in New York City, told the story years ago that in his apartment building, they had a soda machine that was older. And now you use a credit card. But then he would put coins in. And when you put a coin into the machine and push the button to get the soda, you're expecting a soda to drop out. But often it would get stuck. And what do you do when it gets stuck? You bang the side a couple of times, and finally it drops from its tray all the way down to the bottom, and you can pull it out. There's a reality that so often the truth is up here, and it gets stuck between our heads in our hearts, and we need the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to just kind of bang that truth down into our hearts until it produces something into our hands and into our lives. And that's what James wants us to know. Because so often we're given to nominalism, aren't we? Where we know certain things, but it doesn't actually transform our lives. Jesus warns us about this in Luke 14. There he says that if salt loses its saltiness, it becomes useless. If you read the whole chapter, you'll see what he's getting at is that if you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, and yet you are not following Jesus, you are worthless in the kingdom of God. That is a kind of a stark reality for us to look in the mirror and say, Am I becoming worthless in the kingdom of God? And James wants us to help us that we would, we would not. He's going to tell us in chapter 2 that, that even the demons believe and they shudder. So, so he wants us to not just have this idea of belief in our mind that the demons have. I mean, they believe Jesus is true. They just don't allow it to lead to worship. Church, does your belief in Jesus lead you to worship? Lead you to be in awe and be mesmerized by the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Because if it does not, what's going to happen when we actually begin to take steps of faith towards Jesus Christ is that when the world presses in upon us, we're going to respond in one of three ways. We're either going to press in and hold our ground and be dominant, or we're going to press back and eject on living for Jesus Christ, or we're going to actually press upon others and become vocal and become angry and become uh, where we lash out at people. And in each one of those situations, where is the focus? It's not on God. It's on us.
And what's so massive about this is that if we were to just look at Jesus Christ's own life, we would see that the one who is in control of all things did not revile or lash back in the darkest moment of life. You remember that moment? Jesus is arrested. They come with him with swords and clubs. Peter, being his friend, gets out a knife. I'm going after him. He cuts off the ear of one, and, and Jesus says, whoa, 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 don't you realize who I am? If I wanted, I could command all the angels to come and stop this. And yet he doesn't. Why? Because he knows the plan of God. You see, in that moment, Jesus is able to rest in the promise of God because he knew the plan of God. So James wants us to know something. Notice what he wants us to know in verse 19 again. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear. That is utterly difficult, isn't it? You might think, well, I'm a pretty good listener. Well, let's put ourselves back into the story. Let's realize that when you want to follow Jesus and the world hates you, and so you are being oppressed or you are discouraged or difficulties arise or maybe even imprisonment, how might you respond in that moment? My guess is you're going to have some words to say. You're going to want to vindicate yourself, right? Oftentimes, when, when everybody's pressing in on you, the reason why you speak is because you want to prove yourself. You want to vindicate that this is unjust. You want to justify that you are actually right and everybody else is wrong. And in the midst of that, you're doing everything you can to save yourself, to preserve your own life. And when Jesus was in that moment able to preserve his own life, the gospel writers say that he kept silent. It reminds me of what Paul and Silas did in uh, Philippi. If you look at Acts 16, you'll see Paul and Silas are in the city of Philippi. They're proclaiming Jesus Christ. This servant girl is following them, and she keeps uh, calling attention in a, in a way that's actually distracting. And so Paul turns and says, be gone to the, to the evil spirit in her, and that leads them to get arrested. And as they are imprisoned, shackled, how would you respond? Well, if I'm honest, I'd be grumbling. I'd be complaining. I'd be saying, why God? I'd be calling a lawyer. But we read in Acts 16 the way they responded. They responded by singing songs to the Lord. And how did they do that? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians uh, 2, he writes a letter to this very church, and he tells them in Philippians 2, that we are to have the mind of Christ. And what's that mind? It's the mind that gave up everything in heaven to become a lowly servant who became obedient even to the point of death 
even a cursed death, a death on the cross. And in the midst of that obedience and in the midst of that death, Jesus was setting his sights on eternity. And the Father raised Jesus from the dead and exalted Jesus to the right hand of the Father. So now, for all of eternity, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The reason that Paul and Silas could be in prison is because they had the mind of Christ. They could be quick to hear and not lash out because they were resting in the promises and the plan of God. And so now James wants us to take that same mentality that that takes our focus off of our own glory and puts it in the trust and the fullness of God so that we would be quick to hear. But then he continues. Notice what he says in 19. Not just that we're quick to hear, but that we are slow to speak. Again, so often we speak because we feel like with our words we can prove our point. We can prove our value. We can prove our worth. Somehow get out of this difficult situation. So if I just... Use a bunch of words. And yet, what happens when we use a bunch of words? We stop listening to the world around us. We stop listening to, more importantly, to the Lord. And then, as we listen to the Lord, being able to to listen to the needs of those around us so that we might actually serve and love and care for them. Proverbs warns us about our speaking. He t- Proverbs tells us in chapter 18, verse 2, that fools are the ones that despise wisdom. It is fools that takes no pleasure in understanding, but rather in expressing their own opinion. And James wants us to be careful about expressing our opinion You can tell somebody, you can tell when you're around somebody how much of God's word they have actually digested and how much they are living out in their own life because often their conversation is not pointing back to them but pointing back to Jesus Christ. Pointing away from self-preservation and to the reality of God. And so we need to be a people who allow the word of God to calm our speaking. And then it leads James to call us to be slow to anger. That's just a logical conclusion, isn't it? That if we're not going to listen and we're going to be quick to speak, the logical conclusion is that we would get angry, right? I mean, that's the issue that we have today, right? The issue that we are told today is to speak our minds, to follow our heart and speak our minds. Let's pause for a second. What's that doing? It's creating a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, a lot of frustration. James sees that logical connection and he's saying, stop speaking, start listening so that you don't get angry. Now, why does that matter? Well, the author of Ecclesiastes 
uh, tells us in Ecclesiastes 7, 9, that it is anger that lodges in the hearts of fools. Because when you start to get angry, it starts to taste good, and it begins to be lodged into your heart, and eventually you respond to everything in anger. And James wants us to be utterly careful about that. And how do we do that? We do that by being shaped by God's word. He's going to show us in verse 21 in a moment. But, but for now, we need to be a people who are taking God's word and allowing God's word to, to shape our lives. Where we're being shaped by it, where we're submitting to it. And it's guiding us. You know, one of the ways that you can do that is by memorizing God's word. In those moments when you start to get angry and we're told to take our thoughts captive, like actually take that thought as a prisoner and run it to a jail cell so that we're freed to live for Jesus, the way in which we do that is we remember Ecclesiastes 7.9. Oh, don't get angry because it's going to lodge in my heart. Don't do that. Okay. We memorize scripture to be able to fight and combat those evil thoughts, those ways of anger within us. Now, why does this matter? Well, that's what James shows us secondly, and that is the purpose of weaving. So the place that we're supposed to weave the word of God into our life is to guard our hearts, guard our mouths, guard our anger. And now he shows us the purpose. Why do we do this? Why does this matter? And look at verse 20. He begins with the word for. This is a, a connection from verse 19 to verse 20 to give us a purpose. And notice the purpose that he has. He says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Did you hear the implication that James has here? That if you say you believe in Jesus, that should lead us to want to do the righteousness of God. It should lead us to want to live a life that is pleasing to God. And to be holy before God. And to honor God with our hearts, with our mind, with our mouths. Church, is that your desire? That you actually want to live a life that is pleasing to God. Like, are you here this morning because this is the right thing to do? Or are you here this morning because you love Jesus and you want him to shape you and mold you to look more like him? Because James has this implication that we, we want to produce the righteousness of God. And he makes the connection that so often our anger and the righteousness of God are in opposition. Not totally. There is an element in which there is righteous anger. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.29 that we should be angry, but not sin in our anger. And so there, there is an element in which we can be angry and not sin. And so what does that look like? What it looks like is the heart of our anger is directed toward the things of God. 
that we're not angry about the things of God, but the things of God so shape us that we're angry about whatever produces ill toward the things of God. So let me say that more clearly. God hates sin. We too should be angry at our sin. It is right to be angry at human trafficking because human trafficking is a sin and it not only defames the name of God, but it hurts people. We should be angry at that. We should be angry at abuse. But the anger is not driven because of myself, but it's driven because I love Jesus. If we're not careful, so often our anger is driven because of ourself. Think about the last time you got angry. Did you get angry because somebody sinned against a holy and righteous God? Or did you get angry because you were inconvenienced? If I had to answer that question, it was because I got inconvenienced. And in that moment, I did not produce the righteousness of God. And James wants us to see that when we are quick to speak and quick to anger, it runs in the opposite direction of the righteousness of God. But there's a simplicity to what James said, and there's a complexity. The simplicity is what we just talked about. It's simple to understand. Okay, if I get angry at the wrong things or in the wrong way, does not produce the righteousness of God. The complexity is, what is the righteousness of God? Commentators actually debate on this. Dan McCartney, in his commentary, questions, what is the righteousness of God? It is, is it a righteousness that is required from us, or is it a righteousness that God gives to us? And according to verse 21, we're going to see the work of the word and how the word saves our souls. And we recognize that we don't have a righteousness to give. It is actually a righteousness that is outside of us, that is given to us by God. And so when James says that this anger does not produce the righteousness of God, it's not just that being angry keeps us from God. It's that also being angry in that moment of our things does not uh, gain us any sort of righteousness from God. It keeps us from experiencing his righteousness. Because we are a people who are in much need of righteousness. And you might be thinking, okay, you said that word ten times. What does that even mean? It means that God has a standard, and he demands that we live up to that standard. Uh, Last night around the dinner table, we we read Luke 16, 17. and, and, And in there, Jesus tells a story of a man who has a servant. The servant works all day in the field and comes into the house, and the master doesn't say to the servant, well done, let me prepare you food. Let me set the table for you. No, the master looks at the servant and says, I'm hungry. Prepare food for me. Prepare the table for me. Well, why is that? Because it's clear one is the master and one is the servant. 
Just because a servant worked all day doesn't mean that they are entitled to anything. That's just their due. Same thing before the Lord. We are called to be servants of God. We are not entitled to anything. And as a result of not being entitled to anything, it is just our role to honor the Lord in all that we say, in all that we do, in all that we think. And yet, so often we fail that, don't we? We fail that righteous standard. And it's that failure that keeps us from God. It's that failure that keeps us in this cycle of anger, in this cycle of uh, slow to uh, listen and quick to speak. It's only when we become right with God again that we will ever have a fighting chance to turn the tide on our anger. But how does that happen? It happens through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin. Now, how would you feel if you never sped? You drove all around the town obeying every single rule, every single law, and you got pulled over. My guess is some of us are like, whoa, that's not fair. Now imagine the cop wrote you a ticket and said, $1,000 fine. What did I do? Well, because Bill down the road or Joe down the road, sorry, Bill, Joe down the road sped. So I'm giving you the ticket. But I didn't do anything. And Paul says that's exactly what happens to Jesus. He knew no sin. He did nothing. And yet he took on sin. He didn't just take it on, but he became our sin. So that he might take it and he might bear the wrath of God and that he might conquer our sin and in that process give us his righteousness. And so the only way you and I can be right with God is not because we have mustered it up or figured it out, but because the one who did nothing wrong took our penalty and gave us his life. And now by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we too can have life with him. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to implore you and encourage you to give your life to Jesus because you don't have a righteousness that will ever match the requirement of God. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can be right with God. And yet if we have that faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God gives us grace and it gives us power and it begins to change and transform us so that we look more like Jesus Christ. How often in life we know the truth of Jesus and yet we miss the reality that it is to change us and to transform us. Church, do you realize that when you read God's word, I want to encourage you to read God's word, but when you read it, it's not just for information, but rather it's to be transformed, to be changed 
by this word so that we might better reflect the image of Jesus Christ. So often we produce anger because our thoughts are on ourselves. This is unjust. This is inconvenient. And so I get angry. And I wonder if part of the reason that we get angry is because we have such a small view of God and such a small view of reality. If you were to think, it, think about your life, do your thoughts go to your present momentary experience or does it go to the eternal ages that are in Christ Jesus? You see, when I get angry, I get angry because I am too much living in the present and I'm missing the greater reality of what God is doing. And so we need to train ourselves to see the greater realities of what God is doing. How do you train yourself to see those realities? You do that by slowing down by calming your mind, calming your heart, and just observing the reality of God. Yesterday morning, I got to go on a walk, and as I did, I got to just look and just see the different shapes of the clouds, different shades of the clouds. And right now, it's just a beautiful opportunity to even look at the trees and think, I mean, maybe some of you are artists, I'm not. I would not have come up with so many greens and reds and yellows and oranges, and yet the God of the universe created each one of those shades to display full beauty and display full glory so that our, our eyes would be lifted up to the Lord. I mean, think about even the placement of a tree. Why not put the trunk at the top and the branches at the bottom? You think I'm dumb. But if that's the way it was created, you would have no idea, no difference. But even looking at a tree, it pushes our eyes heavenward, doesn't it? How many of us take the time to just look at the simple things in life and allow them to elevate our eyes and our hearts heavenward? To be reminded of the grace of God. And I don't mean grace as in, oh, that's a term we throw around, but the grace of God to just realize Man, my sin yesterday was enough to keep me from the Lord. And yet he loved me and died for me. You see, when I begin to see my own sinfulness and the grace of God in the midst of that sinfulness, my heart that is so quick to anger begins to be humbled. And realize that's how the Lord should respond to me in anger. And yet he responded to me with much forgiveness and much love and much grace. And how does all of that happen? Well, James shows us lastly in the power for weaving. Look at verse 21. He uses the word therefore. 
Now we've got a result. He, he told us the purpose, or he told us the place. He told us the purpose, and now he's giving us a result. This isn't a result that we do out of duty, but rather it's out of delight. Because we see the power of God, and we, we see the realities of God. And notice what Paul, or James, sorry, wants us to do. Look at verse 21. He says, to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. He wants us to put away, to fight in our lives, the evil and the wickedness that are in us. And again, that's hard, isn't it? Because when you are in the midst of suffering, you are looking for some way of escape. And sometimes the escape is to get angry at other people and sometimes the way of escape is to find a pleasure that just eases your pain. In either way, what you're doing is you're running to worldly responses rather than running to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so James wants us to put that away, to recognize it's there, to see where in our life it comes in, and to push them out of our lives. But that's not James' main point in this verse. A little grammar lesson for you is that putting away is a participle. And what that means is that it is contingent upon another verb. It is not the main action in the verse. It is dependent upon a different main action. James doesn't want you to walk away saying, I got to put away. No, that's not the main command. There's a different main command. Notice what that main command is. In verse 21, he says, to receive. That's the action. The way you put away is that you begin with receiving. The way in which you are silent or quick to hear and not lash out is that you are receiving. And what are you to receive? You are to receive the implanted word of God. This is why James has told us in this entire paragraph that the word of God must be woven through every aspect of our lives because it's only when we receive this word that is implanted in us, not put on top not put around, but put in us that all the other commands can actually happen. And it's the very word you and I need. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then he goes off and they trek all across the countryside trying to find him and he just simply calls them out and says, hey, you don't look for me because you want me. You look for me because you want bread. I'll tell you something. I've got bread. It's my body. Like, whoa. Not a cannibal here. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The only way to actually be nourished is to feed on his body, which is the bread of life. And thousands no longer follow him. And so Jesus turns to his few disciples and he asks them and he says, are you going to leave me as well? And if you remember what Peter said, he said, where else shall we go? Only you 
have the words of eternal life. Church, we need this implanted word because it is only Jesus that has the words of eternal life. There is no other way, no other place that you can turn to but Jesus Christ. Only he has the words of eternal life. And it's in this point that we must now receive. And how do we receive these words? Look at verse 21 again. He says, to receive with meekness. To receive with humility. That the way in which we handle suffering is that we keep and we seek and we receive the word of God. And we do that by humbling ourselves before the word of God. We come hungry, laying down our attempts, laying down our visions for our own life. And we submit them to Jesus and we humbly receive this word. Is that what you do each week when you come in? Recognizing I can't do life without the words of Jesus Christ. And so I come humbly ready to receive those words. Because notice how powerful those words are. He says that they are able to save your souls. Why do you get angry? Why do you lash out? Why do you respond harshly when life is difficult? James says, because you're trying to save your soul. And it does not produce the righteousness of God. The world tells you there are a thousand avenues to save your soul. And James tells us there's only one that actually does. It's receiving the word of God and allowing that to trickle deep into the recesses of your mind and heart so that you respond not out of self-glory, but respond to the Savior's glory. And so church, we kind of come back to where we began. How do you respond when life pushes on you and presses into you and, and your heart begins to arise in anger? How do you respond in that moment? Do you lash out? Or do you look up? To Jesus Christ. Allowing his word to shape you. And to mold you. So that you might actually love others. For all of eternity. That is the only key. For us to be able to withstand the pressures and persecutions. Is to just cling to the word of God. To the point that it is woven into the very fabric of our lives. Is that true of you? Do you love God's word? Do you cherish his word? Do you see that you can do nothing in life apart from his very word? And do you submit to it?
because James shows us that's the only path for us in life. Let's pray. Father, we are so utterly grateful for your word this morning. Not only that we could receive it, but that we could understand more about it. That we could understand more how to receive it. That we could understand more of the way it changes our lives and our minds. And yet, Father, we must confess that so often it is not the word of God that is woven into our lives. It is the word of the world that shapes us. Oh, Father, we confess that we are enticed and allured by the world more than you. And so we ask, would you change us? Would you help us to see the beauty of your word, the joy of your word, and that it would transform our hearts and our minds so that we might respond to your great glory and that we might respond to the world with your great glory. And so, Father, we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.